Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Warwick Vincent, Professor of Limnology and Microbial Ecology at Laval University. His recent work looks at microscopic life at the bottom of aquatic food webs and the physical aspects of the ecosystems they live in. In this episode, we talk about his work and expeditions in the polar regions, how ice cap melting is affecting their ecosystems, and the difference between the Arctic and Antarctic. Professor Vincent also explains how indigenous groups like the Inuit are disproportionately affected by climate change and the geopolitical effects of a melted Arctic. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Warwick Vincent. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it's great to be here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Laval University? And broadly, what got you interested in aquatic ecosystems? Well, uh, I'm originally from New Zealand. And so I grew up in Auckland, very close to the water. I was always very interested in water. Uh, when I went to university, it's always a sort of a random walk. It's uh, You're never too sure who you might meet, what you might bump into. I was very interested at that stage in cell biology. I thought that was really cool, pulling apart cells and trying to figure out how they worked. But then in the middle of my degree, I took a freshwater ecology class. And we were out on a beautiful lake and we were sampling and the sun was shining and we're using all these neat technologies. And I thought, gee, this would be a really cool area to develop, including applying cellular techniques. And so that continued on. I finished up my degree and was looking around for different opportunities. Um, uh, ultimately, uh, I was looking at Canada as a place that I might do a degree. But then we had a visit from a very charismatic professor from the University of California, Davis. He came down to New Zealand and I met up with him and he said, you know, the place to learn about freshwater ecosystems is Lake Tahoe, California, Nevada. And at UC Davis, we have this incredible group and you should really look at this very seriously. So that took me through UC Davis and I've had strong connections with UC Davis ever since. But eventually after doing my PhD at, at UC Davis, I had uh, different opportunities throughout the world, ended up back in New Zealand. But I had a special interest in the polar regions. Mm -hmm. We can talk about that in a little bit more detail. But uh, more recently, uh, I, I, was, I was interested in applying some of my interests and expertise to the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And one university really jumped out at me, and that was Laval University in Quebec City, Canada, where there's a, there's a lot of resources. There's an icebreaker called the Amundsen for working up through the ice up in the Arctic Ocean, uh, a set of field stations, nine field stations going up to almost the North Pole. Wow. Uh, it seemed like this would be a good place to work, and so I ended up at Laval University. Definitely. <laughs> what was going through your mind when you first stepped foot on Antarctica back in 1979? It was when I stepped out of the plane, I thought, I've left planet Earth. <laughs> this is a new planet. It's the light is, is, is all wrong, and it's 24 hours of daylight, very low sun angle. The sun just goes around and around the horizon. Uh, the scaling doesn't seem right because here's a, I'm right next to a mountain that's 12 and a half thousand feet high. looks like I could climb it in a day. Yeah. Not a good thing to do actually. <laughs> and a beautiful snow and ice, uh, it, an alien landscape, yeah. very beautiful extraterrestrial landscape. This is an extraordinary place. How many expeditions have you led there and have you been able to see any visual changes? 
of your time? Yeah, so in Antarctica, in the South Polar region, uh, I came in as a, a very junior scientist with an existing team, learned a lot that season. And then from that point on, I ran about uh, probably about nine or 10 expeditions mm. to Antarctica in different parts of Antarctica. Yeah. And then can you compare and contrast the differences between Antarctica and the Arctic? There are obviously there are similarities mm. in that they're both polar regions. They both have uh, six months of, of light and six months of darkness. Mm -hmm. uh, they're both cold. Snow and ice is very important in, in both environments. But apart from that, there are fundamental differences. Uh, Antarctica is a continent surrounded by sea, stormy seas. I've mm -hmm. worked out on those seas. Yeah. It's, boy, they, I have a lot of respect for the Southern Ocean. Uh, whereas the Arctic is a sea surrounded by land. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest difference that really came home to me working in Canada is that no one lives in Antarctica. There are many scientists, thousands of scientists actually working down in Antarctica each year. In the Antarctic, the largest program is, is through the United States, mm -hmm. uh, Antarctic program, uh, with a large base at McMurdo Sound, but no one living there permanently. Whereas the Arctic, people have been living there for thousands of years, and we have a lot to learn from those people. Definitely. And could you talk about the difference between rivers and lakes on land, on typical land, and in these Arctic or polar regions? It, it's a really good question about what are the lakes. And, and I remember being asked by a newspaper reporter when I came back to New Zealand the first time, he said, would normal people call these lakes? <laughs> so, well, it depends on what you call a lake. So, a, a lake is a basin of water. But uh, apart from that, there are some differences. Of course, in the Antarctic and the Arctic, the that water is covered by very thick ice. Mm -hmm. So as a freshwater specialist, as a limnologist, as a, as a lake ecosystem person, the first thing you have to learn to do is to punch holes mm -hmm. through very thick ice before you can even start working and access the water. So that that thick ice is, is really an important aspect. Um, and then... The uh, the food web is 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 quite simplified relative to say Lake Taupo, Lake mm -hmm. Tahoe, mm -hmm. or Lake Taupo, where I was based back in New Zealand. You've <laughs> yeah. got fewer uh, uh, animal species, fewer plant species. That also makes it a really interesting model mm -hmm. because you can ask fundamental questions about well, how do ecosystems work? Let's take the fish out. Fish are not there. So, all right, now we can figure out how that ecosystem works in the absence of fish and really tease apart the individual components of, of ecosystems. Some of these ice-covered lakes are really wild in their characteristics, unbelievable. And mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the first people didn't believe what they were measuring really? when they punched a hole through the ice. One of those pioneers actually was my professor from UC Davis, Charles Goldman. Mm -hmm. And Professor Goldman worked down there in the 60s uh, and he penetrated down through the ice, uh, uh, maybe 15, 20 feet of ice. Wow. And then he lowered down his thermistor probe. And of course, it's supposed to get colder, right? In fact, it got warmer and warmer and wow. warmer. And the bottom of, of the lake was... It was like ambient temperature. It's like, you know, almost uh, well, 25 degrees Celsius. Wow. Whoa. 
And I said, how is that possible? The average air temperature down there is minus 20. The winter is minus 60, 60 below. It's, and it turns out these lakes are acting as natural solar cells. Mm -hmm. they, they're like glass houses. Mm -hmm. So the sunlight is coming down through that ice. And year after year after year, gradually that solar energy is accumulated. Okay. The calculations are to get to that warm temperature, it took 2,000 years. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing when you're up there on the top of the ice and you're pulling up this water. It's like hot water. That you're, it's like a hot water bottle <laughs> that you pulled out. Yeah. And it's all due to solar power. Yeah. That's amazing. insane. So just so everyone can get the understanding, Antarctica land continent with an ice sheet on top of it. And then the Arctic, a lot of it is sea ice or frozen seawater over the North Pole right now. That's correct. With land around it yeah. that, that feeds in. And a big difference, really, another big difference between the North and the South Polar Zone is the importance of rivers. So in, in Antarctica, we have little rivers, uh, little streams, which are very interesting biologically mm -hmm. as well. Whereas up in the Arctic, we have huge rivers, yeah. massive rivers, some of the biggest rivers in the world. Uh, in, the, in Canada, the, the Mackenzie River. Mm -hmm. So the Arctic Ocean is only 1% uh, of the total world ocean volume, but it gets 10% of the world's fresh water. Wow. wow. And so all these, these fresh waters are uh, uh, discharging in. And as a result of that, the Arctic Ocean has has quite fresh surface water. Interesting. Relative to Antarctica, which is really quite salty. Yeah. And then the all the rivers and lakes we're talking about, those are existing under ice, but on the land masses still before we get to the top part being just the Arctic Ocean. That's correct. So uh, for the most part, they're flowing over land mm -hmm. with a couple of exceptions. Mm -hmm. There are glaciers that have rivers flowing on the top of them. Okay. On the Greenland ice sheet, for example, mm -hmm. there, are, there are big uh, rivers flowing over the ice. Yeah. Uh, and when you're out on glaciers up in the Arctic, you can hear waterfalls. You hear this roar of, of wow. mountain water, but it's water on ice that eventually ends up on land and then discharges out mm -hmm. in the sea. And could you give a quick definition of glaciers? Yeah, so glaciers are simply blocks of ice that form on mountains and that flow. Mm -hmm. They flow very slowly, but they are flowing masses of ice. Very important for us throughout the world in terms of temperature and in parts of the world, very important in terms of drinking water. Mm -hmm. And narrowing back in a little bit, could you talk about the importance of microscopic life in these regions? Well, I Broadly, think it's... Too. I think it's it, it just... Um, it's, it's in recent times that we've begun to realize there is an invisible world out mm -hmm. there that uh, so much of the life that exists on our planet is not immediately apparent to, to our human eyes. Mm -hmm. But applying new techniques, especially DNA-based techniques, omic techniques, we suddenly see that most of the life on planet Earth is microscopic. It's invisible, it's incredibly abundant, it's, uh, it, and it's incredibly diverse. I mean, we added up in the, in the, in the ocean, you take a, a, a glass of water, of, uh, when you're down on the seashore, you can take a glass of seawater, hold it up to the light, it looks transparent, there's mm -hmm. nothing in it. But in fact, it is teeming with life. Mm -hmm. there, are, there could be a trillion cells in that, in that glass of water. And you add it all up of the world ocean, that invisible life, it, it adds up to the equivalent of tens of millions of blue whales. Yeah. <laughs> There's a huge amount of biomass. It's invisible, but it's 
very important. And so it's like the human bi- microbiome. We, it, it's only in recent times that we realize mm-hmm. that there is this, this uh, microbial life associated with us. It's part of our digestive system. It's, it's keeping bad microbes mm-hmm. at bay. It's important for our own well-being and health, even our mental health. Mm-hmm. And similarly, we think that the environmental microbiome is very important. This microscopic life is important as a life support system on planet Earth and keeping healthy ecosystems in a healthy state. Can you expand a bit, especially as the ice sheets are melting, how that microbiome impacts the rest of the food chain all the way up to the Inuits and the people living there? So the, the, that microscopic life is extremely important for keeping the base of the food web going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, with the melting of glaciers, we're seeing some perturbation of that of the bottom of the food web. That invisible life is, is supporting microscopic animals mm-hmm. the, called zooplankton. Those zooplankton are really the, the intermediates in the food web because they're the fish food mm-hmm. that are keeping species like polar cod uh, surviving and thriving. Those in turn are eaten by seals and, and uh, there are belugas and, and uh, walruses and other, other species, which in turn are very important as food sources for the Inuit culture. And one very interesting aspect about all this is that the, that microscopic life, that invisible life up in the north, generates a lot of fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Omega-3 fatty acids, PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are really critical to our, our own nutrition and very important to the Inuit. And it turns out that the Inuit, the, the people who live in the, the northern regions of, of Canada and Greenland and, uh, and parts of, of Russia, they, Alaska, uh, they are adapted to a very high lipid diet. They need a lot of energy, obviously, living as people living in a very cold climate. And they're adapted to these lipid-rich diets, the fatty acid-rich diets that start with that invisible life, and that moves all the way through the food chain, ultimately, to the people who are consuming this at the top. Yeah. And what are some of the things we can learn from talking to these people and working with them? I think we can learn enormously. And we see examples of people in the past, explorers in the past, who failed to talk to the locals. They came in with their own technologies from Europe, thinking that they could, you know, it was man against nature. Man shall have dominion over the lands and the seas. Well, a better idea is talk to the people who've been living there for millennia, for thousands of years, because they have ways that might help you not only survive, but also thrive in that environment. Mm -hmm. So many of the early explorers got into huge amounts of trouble. Many died as a consequence of really not talking to the locals, talking to the Inuit, talking to northern communities about how you live in this extreme environment. So I think at one level, you can learn about how to adapt to harsh environments and how to to survive and and operate in uh, an extreme cold environment. But secondly, I think you can learn how to be a human being, how to be a better human being in relation to the environment. Mm -hmm. Because for indigenous peoples and and especially the Inuit, there is no dividing line between Mm -hmm. human beings and the environment. They say, we are part of the land, we are part of the sea, 
You know, we're part of the climate. There's no dividing line there. It's not us against nature. It's not a fight. Mm-hmm. We're in this together. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that message is even more important to us in the 21st century mm-hmm. as we realize that we are perturbing our environment at a planetary scale. Yeah. We need to get back to living with that environment. This is, it's part of us. So, you know, when people say, hi, oh, yeah, protecting the environment, we can't afford to do this. Well, it's like, well, we're protecting ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we're mm-hmm. part of this. It's Let's look after ourselves. And so the Inuit have a whole series of principles about how to survive and how to adapt. And adaptability is yeah. is critical. Definitely. And then you mentioned there how this is a global issue. Could we focus a bit on how the Arctic is warming so quickly compared to the rest of the world and then extrapolate how that then will impact the rest of the world? So this is of great concern to us that, of course, the world is heating up. But in the Arctic, there are multiplier factors. And it's a, it's a process that is referred to as Arctic amplification. So while the world may be now uh, warming to one, 1. 1.2 degrees, on average, the Arctic region is warming to 4 degrees, 5 degrees, 6 degrees. Uh, on average, the Arctic is increasing by about a factor of three relative to the rest mm-hmm. of the world. And it's because of a whole series of feedback effects. It's, for example, solar energy is, is coming into the Arctic Ocean, and it's reflected by all that ice at the top of the world. It's That ice is acting as a gigantic mirror. Mm-hmm. It's removing that solar heat, putting it back into space. But as we melt that mirror, less heat is reflected, more is absorbed. Well, that's more heat for melting. That's melting the mirror. The, the ice is getting less and less less heat is reflected back. And so it's it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious feedback process mm-hmm. that is accelerating. And the concern about this is certainly locally for the local residents, uh, for the Inuit, for the people who've been living there for thousands of years for whom ice is so important. But it's of concern to the rest of us. You know, they, they say it's, you know, it's not like Vegas. What goes on in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic because the Arctic is connected to the rest of the world. It is, uh, it is affecting our sea level. It is affecting our uh, climate regime. Uh, it's affecting the overall circulation of the world ocean, which is mm-hmm. connected between the Arctic and Antarctica through the global conveyor belt. So the sort of changes that we are seeing in the Arctic are of great concern to us for throughout the planet. Yeah. And then one of the things you've also mentioned before, maybe not yet on this interview, but the fact that increased rain will also exacerbate it beyond just the mirror effect. Could you expand on that too a little bit? So this is a big change that we're starting to see that, of course, in the past, there was all the precipitation up in the Arctic was snow. Mm -hmm. It's so cold. It's always snowfall. But suddenly, for the first time, we're seeing a shift towards liquid precipitation Mm -hmm. to rain. And rain is a real game changer. As soon as you get rain on snow, it affects that reflection effect. Mm-hmm. You see that yourself. You know, when the rain comes in the on the snow, it's it's affecting the, the the color of the snow. The snow is darker. The snow is melting more rapidly. It's also of concern to us with the the permanently frozen ground. So, what we refer to as permafrost. 
and what engineers uh, up in the north when they're building runways and and military bases and towns and and roadways the engineers have really treated the ground as concrete mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's rock solid well it turns out that rock is ice it's mm-hmm. ice in the in the soil uh, and is called permafrost but not so permanent anymore <laughs> yeah. and so rainfall as as we shift more and more to rainfall that's a big problem because we uh, we start eroding away at the road that starts ponding water that starts heating up more more thawing more water again we're back into one of those nasty vicious circles yeah so it requires some very sophisticated ways to to deal with that so rainfall is a big issue yeah and then at the ecological level because i kind of see the rainfall issue being ecological and infrastructure so at the ecological level could you explain like what is happening when the ground is warming and like the methane release and all that so that that rainfall is accelerating the overall thawing of permafrost and one of the extraordinary things about permafrost is this huge amount of carbon that is deep frozen mm-hmm. and locked away from the atmosphere it's estimated that all that organic carbon because it's 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 old plants it's old uh, vegetation that's that's occurred uh, thousands of years ago maybe even millions of years ago in some areas and it's it's away from the atmosphere but as we start warming it up and liquid water is coming in the rainfall is coming in suddenly that's a great place for microbes to start activating and start breaking down and mobilizing for the first time perhaps in millions of years wow. that organic carbon there is enough organic carbon in the soil to raise atmospheric co2 levels by more than a factor of two wow but even worse than that a lot of that mobilization takes place as methane mm-hmm. and methane is a very strong greenhouse gas it's over 20 times more powerful than carbon dioxide and these microbes there's a certain group of microbes called methanogens they're generating methane they need a number of conditions one is low oxygen and liquid water and we're starting to move into that situation so for example there are, we have uh, lakes and ponds that we work on and they are they're packed full of these microbes that are generating methane from the permafrost derived organic carbon you can even set fire to the methane you can punch a hole in the middle of winter punch a hole down through the ice uh, and then the methane starts to escape if you light a match boom you suddenly get this flame (laughs) leaping out to a couple of meters high out of the lake this is so much of this methane that is being generated in these environments so that's that's of concern to us. We think it could be a relatively slow process. There's a lot of debate as to how much of that methane will come out when. Mm-hmm. Will it be earlier? Will it be next? You know, will it be 50 years, 100 years? Uh, people refer to that as the the methane time bomb. Uh, our hope is that that time will be in the long, long term, and that we can we. But we know that already there is some feedback on climate that's taking place. And, and of course, it's another one. It's one of these vicious circles again yeah. that you, you're generating more methane. That's heating up the atmosphere. That's warming the permafrost, which is providing more opportunity for these little microbes to start producing the methane. Yeah. In looking at that from a more infrastructure point of view, could you describe the polar silk road? So, yeah, there are a lot of geopolitical implications of these changes that are taking place. 
Uh, and we see that. I'm, I've been working on a committee called the International Arctic Science Committee, which brings together nations uh, interested in the Arctic. When we started, uh, there were nine nations. Now there are 23. And so, and, and a lot of that relates to what are the implications of uh, a decreased uh, ice concentration in the Arctic Ocean, more open water. What that means is the potential for more shipping, mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, through the Northwest Passage and then the other side of the Arctic, the Russian side, referred to as the Northern Seaway. Mm-hmm. And we see each year that opening up more and more. Uh, China has been very interested in this opportunity because for two reasons. One is that the Northern Seaway allows uh, a a much faster tracking of ships from Asia to Europe. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's a seaway out of the influence of the United States. So politically, it's very interesting for them as a way to avoid uh, international uh, interference in in what their operations are. So they refer to that as the Polar Silk Road, uh, as a new kind of transit way along the Russian coast. Uh, we and I have to say we are very concerned about what's happening in the Russian Arctic right at the moment. There's a scaling up of military activity, a scaling up of industrial activity, uh, and a scaling up of transport. And we are connected to that in Canada. Yeah. We're all connected because the world—it's the world ocean. You know, everything mm-hmm. is connected on this planet. So, you know, once again, uh, the the linkages there are, are important for us to keep track of in a changing climate. Definitely. And in the book chapter you sent us, which we will put on the website for everyone to read as well, it was really eye-opening to see the US, China, and Russia all say that their quotations that you put in there, it was, we are experiencing climate change, but there's an economic opportunity here. And to view that economic opportunity, could you contrast how there might be like a, a race to take control over the Arctic versus the very collaborative nature of the Antarctic? It's an enormous contrast between Antarctica and the Arctic. And it, again, it, it relates to the fundamental geographic differences of those two regions of the world. Antarctica is a long way away from the rest of the world. It's cut off by a stormy ocean, the Southern Ocean. Uh, it's under international jurisdiction by way of the Antarctic Treaty. All claims by sovereign nations are put to one side. Uh, it's regulated by an international body under the Antarctic Treaty System. And so it, it is a continent devoted to peace mm-hmm. and to science, to research, to understanding how pla- our planet works, given how the portal regions exert such a major influence on the rest of the planet. The opposite is, is true, unfortunately, of the Arctic, because, of course, nations have been there for thousands of years. Uh, the Inuit have been there mm-hmm. for thousands of years. So there are sovereign claims in the Arctic that are well recognized. And uh, as a consequence of that, there's a, it, it's more difficult to achieve international cooperation in the Arctic. We thought it was going really well, actually, up until quite recently, and it still mm-hmm. is going very well. There's an enormous level of cooperation. Uh, the Russian situation is a is a big uh, impediment to that at the mm-hmm. moment, but other nations are still working very closely together. The Arctic Council was set up to at a at a political level to really make linkages mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, 
Uh, as of this year, Norway has, is the chair of the Arctic Council, and we've talked to the Norwegians. They really are wanting to still work towards that cooperation. We're in the long term, really working towards the long term of, in a spirit of cooperation. Hopefully that wins out. Yeah, and it may be the long, long time. <laughs> yeah. But I think the rest of the nations are on board, including China. China wants to work with other nations. Again, they have economic interests. Mm -hmm. uh, India is very active now in, in the Arctic. They're, they see this as the front line of climate change, and they want to be on the front line to figure out what's going on because they're going to have the most populous country in the world, and they need yeah. to know about water supply and and uh, projections of temperature. And the way you do that is you end up in the front line of research because then you access the rest of the world's research. Definitely. Could you talk about some of the larger international agreements like the Paris Accords or the COP26 and how oftentimes the largest producers or polluters rather are doing the least to take action? It's ironic, isn't it? It's uh, we we hear a lot of talk from uh, large nations that uh, say that they're wanting to respect these international agreements, including Canada, I should say. Uh, and it's it, it, and politically, we see the 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 very difficult political balance that uh, politicians face with huge factions, particularly related to the oil, the hydrocarbon industry. Mm -hmm. In fact, it is interesting that at the COP meeting, uh, the second largest delegation was the oil and gas delegation. Wow. So, you know, they have vested interests. At one level, they say, wow, well, we're gonna be scaling up renewables. And uh, BP said, well, we're, you know, it's 40% will be renewables. Well, now they've said, well, now we think about it, could be 25%. Mm. And we saw last year record profits from uh, from the oil producers. So it's huge money, it's huge influence, huge political influence. I think what we can do is, as citizens is make sure that we're hearing the platform of elected officials at every single level. Mm -hmm. And it begins at your local town level, your local community level. You know, what does that person stand for? And and then at the at the county level, and then at the state level, and then at the federal level, and then internationally, who are we supporting here? And that voice, I think we can really make a difference there to influence through votes and, and really press our policy. Well, what do you stand for exactly? And because these individuals have a much greater influence on global climate change mm -hmm. than we do as 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 a, as a single person. But we do have a vote. And definitely. we have a vote at multiple levels and we can yeah. really make that count. You can definitely do your part. And then in that last question there, you touched on the renewables. Could you talk about your like latest discovery about these bacteria or archaea producing hydrocarbons? So there's a lot of interest in trying to find alternatives to fossil fuels. We call them fossil fuels because they're it's oil from plants, but plants that lived on planet Earth millions of years ago. So we're mobilizing all that ancient carbon and putting it into the atmosphere and exceeding all these planetary thresholds. <clears throat> but we realize there are also some natural oil production mechanisms. And this is, uh, we're referring to this as 
blue-green oil. Blue-green because we we see it as as a, a recycling kind of, of, of system. It's new hydrocarbons. And so there are some opportunities there to really tap into these natural oil-producing mechanisms as a way to produce hydrocarbons and a way to produce energy. Yeah, that, that last discovery was fascinating because no one, I never realized that the ocean was producing hydrocarbons, which is similar to oil, not directly, but then also degrading it at the same time. And I look forward to seeing more of that yeah. get discovered. For, uh, that was a real uh, amazing discovery at our end as well, to, yeah. to realize that, hang on a second, there are oil producers in the ocean. And not only that, some of these compounds look like jet fuel. Yeah. And yet... The, the, the sea is not filling up with oil. <laughs> yeah. When you go down to the seashore, you're not jumping into an ocean of oil because there are this natural degradation. And that's I think that's the trick with renewables. You want to make sure that that carbon cycle is closed. Mm -hmm. So you're producing the CO2, but you're also consuming the CO2 and it's yeah. not getting out into the atmosphere. Yeah. And as we wrap up here, can you talk about how some indigenous groups like the Inuit are often disproportionately affected by these extreme changes? and speak on the right to be gold? For the Inuit, the, the whole concept of ice is a very, very deep concept. They've lived on the ice for thousands of years. Their whole culture is based on living on the ice. So ice is, is their transport surface with their dog sleds over the ice and, and, and walking along the ice edge to go hunting. It's their access point to food. Uh, the, the food web that they consider themselves part of is an ice-based food web. It's mm -hmm. microbes in the sea ice produ f uh, uh, producing the, these, these lipids and other compounds moved on to animals and then up to finally seals and whales, et cetera. So the ice is – but it's even more important than that. I, it's fascinating when I've been talking to Inuit about how it's a deep – it's a spiritual – uh, aspect as they say there's a there's a memory in the ice it is part of it's a very deep part of their culture you look at their language Inuktitut, there are so many words that relate to different kinds of ice and living on the ice and like Tekovic is a lookout place on the ice mm -hmm. a lot so much is related to the ice and and part of that is the cold and they have said you know climate warming is a crime against humanity Mm -hmm. It's a crime against us. It is a genocide because it is affecting our, our culture. Our culture depends on the integrity of ice on planet Earth. And you are destroying that integrity. You are destroying that surrounding environment of extreme cold temperatures. And so uh, Sheila Watt-Cloutier has been one of the key advocates uh, amongst the Inuit. And she has said, you know, we have a right to be cold. No. It is our human right and you are violating that right yeah and could you mention some of the organizations you guys are working with there are there are organizations at different levels uh, in canada at the national level there's an organization called inuit uh, taparit kanatami which means all the inuit together mm -hmm. and that brings together inuit from uh from the western side from the yukon right across to up in nunavik nunavut the different northern mm -hmm. parts of canada and then at an international level, there is the uh, Inuit Circumpolar Committee. Mm -hmm. And that brings together Inuit from Russia, not so easy these days, <laughs> yeah. uh, from Alaska. The Alaskan Inuit are very active yeah. in, uh, in conservation initiatives, for example. Uh, Greenland, Canada, 
Yeah. And so these, these international organizations, I think, are really important because they have soft power. Yeah. They may not have the resources of huge resources of Western nations, but they capture people's imagination. And people can relate to this as fellow human beings who have lived under, under certain circumstances. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful message to get across to the listener. And then there was another message that we wanted to bring up of mentorship. And last night we had the privilege and the honor really to get dinner with all of you guys from Jeff to you to your mentor, Professor Goldman. Could you talk a little bit about how mentorship and academia as a team has really shaped your life and your research? Well, I think mentoring has been everything. It's because you start off just incredibly ignorant. You know nothing, and that's normal. Everyone's like this. and But you know there are people out there that hold some of the secrets that might give you a few beacons to mm -hmm. the way forward. And the best thing you can do is talk to a number of people, talk mm -hmm. to lots of people. I think sometimes um, students are a bit intimidated by professors, but actually we love talking to students. Yeah. That's why we're professors. And so, you know, you, you should never feel bad about at the end of a lecture going up to a professor and say, that was really interesting. Can you tell me about this? Or uh, what sort of research goes on in your lab? Yeah. And just, and because you I, I noticed this in my own class. You know, people are anxious to rush out, and I don't know where they're going, but they're, <laughs> the ones that stay, it's a great opportunity to talk a little bit more about their interests and, and what they're doing. So I, I think a way of thinking about professors is that we're kind of windows, mm -hmm. and every professor is a different window to a different part of the world. And so by, uh, by talking to professors, you're, you're actually connecting with a network Mm -hmm. And very often a very large network, like Professor Goldman. I mean, mm -hmm. Professor Goldman has, he, he graduated 100 students from UC Davis. That's amazing. PhDs. They're all over the world now. Yeah. So you talk to him, you're tapping into <laughs> key people everywhere from Asia to Scandinavia to South America. <laughs> Definitely. And so uh, that mentoring is critical and, and sometimes you have to build up courage. I I uh, went to my very first conference. I saw all these famous named people there. I was totally intimidated. And mm -hmm. I finally built up confidence enough to go up to one of these great names. And I introduced myself. And he said, well, what do you got? <laughs> <laughs> Which intimidated me even further. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but, and then actually that led to lots of exchanges. And, and, and over the course of the next 40 years, we became actually collaborators and work together yeah. but it was from building up a little bit of courage to yeah. ask that person who seemed so far above anything that i could ever aspire to but suddenly that was opening out a new world and so take the plunge yeah now we've seen that ourselves with the podcast everyone's been so receptive yeah. to talk to us and just yeah. want to help not us but also all the people that hopefully are listening to right. this as well right no, it's such a great thing you're doing as we part here, how can students get involved in the last frontier? How can they get to these extreme environments? Well, the best way is to make contact with research groups that are working in these areas. And so this is not a, the sort of place that you want to walk to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you may not walk home yeah. again. <laughs> Maybe a one-way trip. You really want to you know, build up experience and uh, look around, look at what professors are doing what in different places. Uh, volunteer. Sometimes, you know, maybe you're not going to be paid to work up there. But the, you're going to get 
free food and board from that. And plus, you're going to end up with some a killer line on your CV <laughs> that is opening the door to the next step. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think you should be looking at the money in the short, but I know it's, you know, it's important. We got to be able to stay alive and, and function. Uh, but look at opportunities and say, you know, can I help out in a lab or is it an opportunity to help one of your graduate students? And even if it's not during the field season, it's they just being seen around an office or a research group, they realize that, well, yeah, this this guy could be pretty useful to us. Uh, this young lady, yeah, maybe she could fit in and we could really, we could uh, really use her help because she's really helpful. And uh, so, and a lot of that is being able to work in a team mm-hmm. because when you're working in these field programs, you're a long way from home. You really depend on each other. It comes down to every person's survival and success is the group. It's the group around you. you you're there to help everyone else. You're responsible for everyone, including your professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Any final parting words of wisdom? Well, I just think that there are so many incredible opportunities uh, in the environmental sciences, which is my own area, as I've had the, the, the joy and the privilege of working in so many parts of the world from pole to pole in Asia, Europe, South America. We live on a beautiful planet. Mm. It is an extraordinary richness that we are part of. We have to figure out a better way to look after it. But we should, I think the the best thing you can do is learn more about it and get involved. I think this is a fantastic, and stay positive because, you know, we have imagination. People say, oh, it's it's too late. It's it's not too late. We have imagination. The Inuit are showing us this ability to adapt, to think outside the box, to stay alive, to help each other. Mm -hmm. This is an incredible time. And I think the climate change is this huge challenge that faces everyone. But what a fantastic challenge to be part of, to Mm -hmm. be helping humanity get through all this. It's a very important time to be alive and to be involved in studies. Certainly. Go get involved. Yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.